Welcome, and thank you for joining us on the City Point Church Sermon Podcast, where our desire is to help you follow Jesus. We are so glad that you are here, and wherever you are listening from, we believe that God has something in store for you through today's message. We are in the pattern here at City Point Church of believing convictionally, deeply, that this is God's word for us. This is not my word for you today. God has spoken and superintended, breathed out this text through the ministry of his spirit. And so it is a living book, and it has truth for us today, and I trust and believe that God will bring this truth to bear on each of our lives so that we differently as a result of what God has shown us from his word. This series in the book of James has been called Gospel on the Ground, James chapter 2. By the way, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, there's one underneath the chair rack, pretty close by, if you just find that or um, take that out. We will be on page five, uh, sorry, page 950 on that particular copy of God's Word. That'll get you right to James chapter 2. We're calling this Gospel on the Ground because we want the Gospel to have handles. We want it to get traction. We want it to make sense. We want it to have application, not just be something that we know, but something that is lived out and fleshed out in our everyday life. So this is gospel on the ground. Pastor James is a pastor in Jerusalem. He's writing to a group of Christians that were first generation, first century Jewish Christians. They had been scattered. And so this letter, no doubt, is being circulated. And it's going to different living rooms and different households and different groups of Jewish Christians are reading this from Pastor James and they're beginning to understand what does this new way of following Jesus look like in my everyday life. Today's message is entitled, A Partial Problem. A Partial Problem. Now that doesn't mean a problem that is only half a problem. That means a problem with partiality, favoritism segregation and discrimination within the church based on outward factors in appearance. It's a partial problem. Take a look at it with me. Chapter 2, we'll read verses 1 through 13. It's, a, it's the lengthiest section that we've read so far in this study, so there's a lot in here. Follow along with me if you would. James chapter 2, Pastor James writes, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet or by my footstool, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law 
as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. There's a lot of text here, and I'm going to do my best to unpack it in the time that we have. I would encourage you, take the notes that you receive in church and go back and sit in this text and trust the Spirit of God to speak to you through His Word. Here's the big idea. A gospel, vibrant church will be vigilant against partiality. If the gospel is going to be on the ground and functioning in our church, we must be vigilant against favoritism and partiality. Now, here's the reality. We all have biases, right? We all have preferences. We are all partial in some respect. I think it's a pretty well-known reality that In-N-Out Burger is, in fact, the greatest fast food cheeseburger in the world. That's actually not partiality, folks. That's, that's just a fact. Some of you might like Five Guys or McDonald's. Like, I th- Sorry, I shouldn't have even said that. Not even the same category. Some people are partial towards Dutch Bros coffee. You know, you've got the sticker on your back window. That's like dessert coffee to me. Some people maybe are partial to Starbucks. Is anybody partial to Starbucks? I think Starbucks is just convenient. Some of you are partial to like the bougie local shops that have like hard names to say. You got to like Google the pronunciation of it. And that's, you're just kind of like, you've got your bias, you've got your favorites. Some people, your dog people, other people, your cat people. Some people, your Mac people, other people, your PC people. Some, some, some of you are like, you drive a Chevy. Some of you drive a Ford. A handful of you might drive a Dodge. Sorry, Dennis. We've got our preferences. There, there is a group of people in the world that think pineapple belongs on pizza. Everybody else does not. Some of you are partial with which direction the toilet paper hangs. Parents in here, you're probably partial towards your kids. Like, that's, that's okay, you know. As long as you're not partial among your kids, right? <laughs> but like, you love your kids. Grandparents, you're partial towards your grandkids, right? You're probably even more partial towards your grandkids than your own kids. Some of this is neutral and fun, and it doesn't really matter so much if you like one cheeseburger over another or one coffee shop over another. But what about when this kind of partiality starts to creep into the church? And we start to see biases and partiality, not not just in maybe styles and preferences, but actually towards people in the church. Now, every church thinks that they are the most friendly church. I mean, they advertise with it on their Google ads. It's on their website. You know, this is a place to belong. This is a place for everybody. We're the friendliest church in town. But the reality is that's not always experienced when you walk into the front doors. 
It reminds me of that classic Christmas movie, Elf, with Will Ferrell. If you've ever seen that movie, Buddy, who's Will Ferrell in the movie, he's coming from the North Pole. He's actually a human, doesn't realize it, finds out his dad lives in New York City, so he comes to New York City to find his dad, and he's walking down the street of New York City, and there's this shady diner that he walks past, and there's this neon sign in the window of the diner that says, World's Greatest Cup of Coffee. And so Buddy walks into the shop and he's like, congratulations, everyone, you did it. You have the world's greatest cup of coffee. I think some churches think they deserve a neon sign that says we are the world's friendliest church. You know, the humor of Buddy walking into that diner is that we all know that that coffee tasted like burnt Folgers. And everybody in that scene is looking at him like, what are you doing? Like, they don't even realize that the neon sign is out front. So every church thinks they deserve this neon sign, that they deserve, like, this congratulatory, like, you're the world's friendliest church. But is that truly the reality? Is it true that this is a church where we are not showing favorites based on the exterior, but we are, in fact, welcoming all in through the gospel? When favoritism and discrimination begin to creep into the church, the gospel has stopped functioning properly. And so a gospel vibrant church will be vigilant against partiality. So here's what this text is going to answer. It's going to answer this question. How do we stay vigilant against partiality? It's going to come right from this text. There are four ways that we corporately as a church can stay vigilant against partiality favoritism creeping into the church. I want you to see it. It's going to look like this. Number one, we stay vigilant when we wake up to the reality of it, the reality of partiality. This is in verses one through four. James is going to get right to the point here. This is in true James style. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. It's as if he's saying you're being hypocritical. In one hand, you are holding the faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ that does not discriminate. And yet, with the other hand, you are showing partiality. You see, the ground is level at the cross. The gospel levels the playing field, both before, during, and after the game. We all get in the same way by the blood of Jesus Christ. We all have access to to the same work of the Spirit and grace of God, and then we all have the same inheritance waiting us someday. So here we are holding this gospel that is not partial, and yet we are showing partiality to others. And then he uses this example in verse 2, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, the word there in the original is the word synagogue, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So two people have entered into this gathering, and by the indications here in the text and by what's going on, they were most likely guests. They had to be told where to sit. They were newer comers to this group. And so there's two different people. First, the rich man walks in, and he's got, these, he's got these gold rings on. The word here means gold-fingered. He's got all the bling going on, all the evidence of wealth. He has this fine clothing, 
which means this bright and brilliant clothing, clothing that would have been costly and expensive. Well, then a poor man walks in, and he has shabby clothing. If you were here last week, it's the same word that we looked at last week, filthiness. This just filthy, dirty, run-down clothing, a rich man and a poor man, and then they get two different responses. The rich man, he says, if you pay attention, and if you look at the text there, they don't pay attention at all to the poor man. They only are paying attention to the rich man. So if you were giving special attention and special privilege to this rich man, and if you were saying, would you come down here and sit right here at these front row seats, these were the these were the chief seats. These were the ones that the scribes and the Pharisees wanted in the life of Jesus in the Gospels. They were down front. And so this special attention is given to this rich man. But then he says, if you say to the poor man, stand over there or sit here at my feet next to my footstool, which would have been a double insult. Here's the verdict. You've made distinctions among yourselves. You've drawn lines that the gospel does not draw, and you've become judges with evil thoughts. Church, I think we need to just simply be aware partiality does exist. It exists. Several weeks ago, one of our members was out in the lobby before, I'm sorry, out in the courtyard before the service, and there was a woman there who was homeless, and she was sitting on one of the benches, and he was seeing what she needed. He was encouraging her. I kind of watched the conversation from a distance. I came in, got ready for the service, and I noticed midway through the service, he came in with her and sat down front on the third row. And I heard the story after the service that he was inviting her to come into the service, and she said to him, do you have a spot in the back where you'd prefer that I sit? And what he said to her is, no, you can come sit down front with me and my wife. See, you might think, well, partiality is not on my mind, but it was on her mind. You see, when guests come or when people come, maybe they're not not used to being in a church environment, you and I might think, man, we deserve the neon sign. But they're walking in thinking, these people aren't like me. I don't know the songs like they know. I don't know who James is or where it's found in that big, thick book he's holding. And so in their minds, they're already thinking segregation and discrimination and I don't belong. And so partiality does exist and you may not be thinking it, but listen, we just need to be aware. And it's not so much what we are doing as much as it's what we're not doing. That we're not saying to the homeless woman, why don't you come just sit with me? We're just kind of walking past her, not even noticing. See, Satan is the master divider. He breaks apart, he divides, he segregates, he isolates. And so it's no wonder when you look around the world, that's all that you see. You see constant fighting, you see constant division. It's based on the color of skin, it's based on the economic status, it's based on what, which side of the tracks you may have grown up on. And so that ought not be the case when it comes to the people of God. Be aware. We must stay vigilant against it when we wake up to the reality of it. We can't just assume it doesn't exist. Because if we were honest, every one of us have that little Pharisee on the inside. I do it. Am I the only one? We kind of we look people up and down a little bit. We judge people based on what we see. What is the answer for that? The gospel. That Jesus didn't look us up and down and measure us 
by other people and say, well, you're in and you're not. But he allowed us all access through the finished work of Jesus Christ. We must stay vigilant. We stay vigilant when we wake up to the reality of partiality. Number two, we stay vigilant against partiality when we look at the blind spots caused by it. There are two blind spots caused by partiality. Verses 5 through 7. I want you to see it here in the text. It says, listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? I picture a dad here kind of like pulling into the driveway with his son in the front seat and he puts it in park and he says, listen, son, I got to talk to you about something. There's something that you're missing. There's something that you're not seeing in your life. So when James says, listen, my beloved brothers, he's aiming for the heart. He sees something that they don't see, blind spots. So there's two of them that partiality forms. The first is that we completely miss the heart of God. Has not God chosen those who are poor? We think God chooses those who are wealthy. We think God chooses those who are affluent. We think God chooses those who are well off. But God's chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. What a juxtaposition. Their, their financial economic status in this world compared to their eternal status with God. They are poor in this world and yet they are rich and heirs of the kingdom. God's heart is for the poor. God's heart is for the oppressed. God's heart is for the marginalized. God's heart is for the one who has been cast aside. The prophet Isaiah says, When the poor and the needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. And then that same God calls us to reflect his heart. So he says in Leviticus 19, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Who is my neighbor? One man asked Jesus. Jesus went on to tell him a story about a good Samaritan to essentially say, everyone. God's heart for the poor, not just the, physical, the physically poor, but we also understand when we, when we put this teaching side by side with the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount that God's kingdom has a different evaluation system. As a matter of fact, some translations in this text when it says that God has chosen the poor in the world, they say in the eyes of the world. So there is, there is a paradoxical evaluation that God has for those in his kingdom. Matthew 5, verses 3 through 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So in God's kingdom, it's a different evaluation system. You find your life after you lose your life. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. You enter not by the broad way, but by the narrow way. And those who are blessed are those who are poor in spirit. That's the first blind spot. We just miss the heart of God. We evaluate poor people differently than God does. But the second blind spot is this. We become like the enemy. 
Look at verse 6, the second half of 6 and 7. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? These are somewhat rhetorical. We know the answers to these. And let me just say, God doesn't hate the rich. That's not what's going on here. Most of us, by the standards, if we were to, if we were to judge our own economic situations by the standards of these that James is writing to, we're all rich. God's not anti-rich. He used a rich man's tomb. He borrowed it. He gave it back three days later. Joseph of Arimathea. He, he used Priscilla and Aquila in the book of Acts and their wealth to advance the kingdom of God so they had a home where the church could gather. God's not anti-rich. He's not against the rich in this sense, but what James is saying is when you start to show partiality, you become to the poor what the rich were to you. They were oppressing you. Now you're oppressing that poor man who walks in. They were hauling you off to court and suing you and judging you. Now you are making judgment calls of discrimination based on physically what you see in their life. They've blasphemed. Maybe this is the heaviest part of it. They've blasphemed the honorable name by which you've been called I wonder if James might just be hinting to the reality that you're doing the same. You represent a God that is not the God, the Yahweh of the Old Testament. You become like the enemy. So don't miss your blind spots. We all have them. Most cars today have in this little side mirror, the little indicator light, either on the mirror or right inside the door on the door frame. This little light, so you don't even have to try nowadays. That little light will turn on when somebody's in your blind spot. Well, I drive a 31-year-old Chevy, because I'm partial, Chevy pickup truck. And can you guess what technology did not exist in 1992? Those little indicator lights. So I have these convex mirrors on my side mirrors so that I can look into my blind spots. Because if you don't look into your blind spots and you change lanes, you're going to have a problem. So James here, like a pastoral, fatherly, older brother, is coming alongside this young group of Christians and saying, listen, you've got some blind spots, and if you don't look into them, you're going to misrepresent the heart of God, and you are going to end up living just like the rich people who have been oppressing and judging and dishonoring God. Don't miss your blind spots. We stay vigilant against partiality when we wake up to the reality of it, when we look at the blind spots caused by it. Number three, when we feel the intense severity of it, of partiality. Do we realize just how big of a deal partiality is to God? Look at verses 8 through 11. If, which could also be translated since, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to Scripture, and here it is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, that's Leviticus, you're doing well. But if, or since, you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. He's going right to the Ten Commandments here. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now, I want to carefully nuance what's going on here. So let me say three things before I dive into the explanation of this. Number one, James is speaking to Jews. 
That's the context. So he's going to talk to them in a context that they understand, which is the law. Number two, Christians, followers of Jesus, we are no longer under the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law is not bad. As a matter of fact, it's good. It serves a very specific purpose to lead us to our, it is a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. The point of the law was not for us to go out and to try to live by that law and therefore gain eternal life. The point of the law really was to realize that we could not keep the moral perfect standard of God and we needed a Savior to come and to fulfill it for us. Enter Jesus. So Romans chapter 7, we've been set free from the law and we now walk after the Spirit. So that's not what James is doing here. And the third thing I want to say, and this is where we'll kind of linger for a moment, is that there is a royal law. The word royal speaks of authority and governance. So think of it this way. There is a law above all the laws that govern all of the laws, and it is the law of love. So love is the supreme command of God. God wants to make a point here that partiality is a much bigger deal to him than we might realize. So the supreme command is love. If you recall, if you've read in the Gospels, maybe you haven't, there's a story there about a lawyer who comes to Jesus and he asks him a question. As a matter of fact, I'll put it up on the screen here for you, Matthew 22. He says, teacher, which is the greatest or which is the great commandment in the law? Now, you get the idea that this is actually not a legitimate question, that he's kind of looking for a loophole. But Jesus kind of entertains the question and he answers it. And he, Jesus, said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's Deuteronomy 6. This is the great and first commandment. And then Jesus gives him two for the price of one. And the second is like it. And this is what James just quoted. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's from the book of Leviticus. And then Jesus makes this statement. On these two commandments depend or hang all of the law and the prophets. What are these two commandments, the first and the second that's like it, what do they have in common? Love. If you were to summarize them, it is love God, love people. Jesus says all of it. All of my moral law and even my holy character hangs on this Love. For love is from God because God is love. This is why Paul says in Romans 13 that love is the fulfilling of the law. So when you keep the royal law, the law of love, and you are not partial, James says you do well. Good job. You do well. But when you don't, he says you have committed sin, which means to miss the mark, and you, have, you are convicted by the law as a transgressor, which means you have overstepped a boundary that God has placed because you've violated the royal law. Now, if that's, not, if that's not heavy enough, if we're not starting to like feel the weight of that already, he takes it a step further and he gives this example in verses 10 and 11 and he wants to make this point that a single infraction against love breaks the whole system. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, which by the way is God, do not commit adultery, also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. In, in, in essence, the whole thing. So if you were to try to take a hammer and just make a single infraction with that hammer against a glass window pane, what's going to happen? 
the whole thing's going to shatter. And that's what happens when you, make, when you break one of God's laws, you break them all. And he's simply wanting them to feel the weight of this, that one infraction against one person who walks in. When you start to judge and discriminate and show partiality towards that one person, you have shattered the whole system of God because you have violated the royal law of love. Do you feel this? Do, do, you, do you feel the weight of this? Now, side note, there's only one person who has perfectly fulfilled the entire law. God has a perfect standard. That is the only proper standard for God to have is perfection. For God to have a lesser standard would mean that he is less than holy. So he must have a perfect and a holy standard. But there's good news that he sent his son, Jesus, who knew no sin, had no infractions to become sin for us. He became all of our infractions so that we, through him, might become, might be made, might be gifted the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. That's what we celebrate. That's what we sing about. That's why we get excited. That's why we preach that good news. Because Jesus came and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so, yes, there is weightiness to this, but he's simply trying to drive home a point to these Jewish listeners that they would have understood in their context that partiality is a very big deal to God. So loved ones, we need to feel that. We need to feel the weight of that. Paul, speaking in hyperbole in 1 Corinthians 13, says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, if I have, if I have all wisdom and all knowledge to prophesy and know all of the mysteries of God, and if I had so much faith that I could go to a mountain and I could speak to it and it would shift and it would move. If I could do all of those things, but I don't have love, I am nothing. We could have a church full of wealthy people, beautiful buildings, furnished, remodeled. We could have all the programs and all the systems. And we could have the staff and we could have the things and we could have the stuff. But church, if we don't have love, we have nothing. Nothing. And as soon as somebody walks into this church and we start dividing and making lines where the gospel has not made them, we have broken the royal law of love. Love must be at work cultivating gospel equality. A gospel vibrant church will be vigilant. We're not just going to sit back and hope that it doesn't come and doesn't creep in. We're going to be vigilant against partiality. We wake up to the reality of it. We look at the blind spots caused by it. We feel the intense severity of it. And then number four, and finally this morning, we live according to the only solution for it. James is going to end positive. I'm kind of feeling the weight after that last section a little bit. He's going to end positive. Look at verse 12. He says, so speak. And so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Two different laws going on here. The royal law is the law above all laws that's governing all laws, and it is love. The law of liberty is the gospel. This is the mirror that we are looking into that we learned about last week. This is the, this is the implanted word that gives new birth in chapter 1 and verse 18. This is the word that we are not just to be hearing, but also to be doing. It is the law of liberty. It is the law that has set us free. So now we don't have to, we want to. 
It's not outside in, it's inside out. And so there is only one proper solution to partiality in the church and among the people of God, and it is to live according to the gospel. Do you understand the gospel? I don't just mean the ABCs, that Jesus died for your sin and rose again, and you can have eternal life if you trust him. But I mean the gospel that is at work in your life right now, child of God. The gospel that is leading you into greater maturity and Christ-likeness. Because when we live according to that, he says, so speak and so live, or so act. In other words, everything that you say and everything that you do, according to those who are going to be judged according to the law of liberty. Now, don't let the word judge scare you. It's accountability. It's stewardship. Paul talks about how we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ and we will receive what is due for what we have done in our body, whether good or evil. So this is not a judgment for our sin that has been received and taken care of by Jesus. This is now at the accountability. What did you do with the gospel Jesus gave you? Did you live according to it? Did you speak according to it? Did you act according to it? Or did you live in a way contrary to it and start judging and telling some to sit here and some to sit there and giving others preference on the stage and others, no, you can't, you can't do this, you can't. How did you live? And then James says that mercy must have the final word. Look at the last verse, verse 13 of this paragraph, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. That statement is speaking to the rich who oppress. That God will ultimately have the final word for those who do not repent and do not turn. And then the second statement is a beautiful gospel truth. Mercy triumphs over judgment. By the way, that can be true for the rich person who oppresses as well. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, this is not just a broad gospel preaching moment for James. He is speaking to these listeners and saying to them, you must allow mercy to triumph over judgment in your congregation. And so we were all deserving of judgment for our sin, but God poured out our judgment on Jesus in our place so that we could receive mercy. Now, those of us who have received mercy must be extending mercy because mercy triumphs. What a beautiful word. Triumphs is victorious over judgment. So my question for you this morning is, do you have a lifestyle? That's the key word, lifestyle. Do you have a lifestyle consistent with the gospel? I have golfed one time in my life. I was in college. A group of friends decided to go golfing. I've done like the top golf and like the driving range stuff, but I mean, I went to an actual course one time. I think we got about 10 holes into it and we quit. I cannot say that I consistently live the life of a golfer. I've only gone one time. James is not calling us to speak one time and act one time as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. As a matter of fact, if you were to dig into the grammatical structure of that sentence, it is continue speaking and continue acting. Not just a one-time golfer kind of a thing, but a lifestyle that is categorized and characterized by the gospel. So that means when we're in church and when we're not. That means when we're like feeling it and feeling benevolent and feeling kind and when we're not. 
when we're around Christians and when we're not. This isn't just like partially living by the gospel, but a lifestyle defined and marked by the gospel. So if City Point Church is going to be a place where all people, regardless of economics, social status, ethnicity, or background, are going to be loved, welcomed, and treated as image bearers of God, it will be because we don't just know the gospel, but we live the gospel. This is not condonement for sin. Welcoming everybody in and accepting everybody in does not mean that we would necessarily affirm and agree with every decision that they're making in their life. It's not what this is. He's just talking about the gathering, the assembly. People are walking in and you're immediately rejecting them. We have a choice to make. Will we just preach the gospel or will we actually live by the gospel? And that's what James is calling us to. So here's that big idea. A gospel vibrant church will be vigilant against partiality. We don't just get to put a neon sign out front that says, world's friendliest church. Congratulations, we did it. We have succeeded because we have a sign out front. No. It takes a whole lot more than that. It takes vigilance. It takes purpose. It takes intentionality. City Point Church is a, is a church plant. We're just over four years old. And as I was thinking about the, the culture of welcome and hospitality and love that I, I really genuinely believe has, has marked our church for these four years, it was so much easier when there were 40 people in the room. When we met at the Moxie Hotel and where everybody got to say hi to everybody every single Sunday. It was a little obnoxious sometimes. <laughs> but we loved it. That was like City Point. We just like sat in that. And people who came that was, that, was a, that, was like a, that was a distinctive. We're going to just have to work a little bit more intentionally at that as the church grows and as God adds to the church. We're not a church of 40 or 50 or 60 people anymore. But that doesn't mean that we should not be a church that loves everyone equally and welcomes them in equally. No partiality here. No favorites here based on our lines of distinction. But everyone welcomed because everyone has been welcomed we want to learn to live this morning we don't just want to learn to learn we don't just want to gain knowledge we want the spirit of God to make application so I've got three questions for you as we finish number one has mercy triumphed over your judgment your judgment for your sin scripture is clear that the wages the penalty of sin is death that's the judgment that all of us deserve. But mercy triumphed over judgment through Christ. The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that question is meant for those here who today, you may not yet be a follower of Jesus. That means that mercy has not yet triumphed over the judgment in your life. I'm not asking, did you grow up in church? I'm not asking, can you quote some scripture? I'm not asking, have you been a part of some religious system? I'm not asking, does everybody else think you're a Christian? I'm asking, has mercy triumphed over judgment? Because there's only one way for mercy to triumph over judgment, and that is by faith in the finished work of Jesus. And that's a personal decision. 
I can't make it for you. Friends and loved ones around you can't make that for you. You have to make that decision. As you gaze at Jesus and see what he has done for you, he has made mercy available to you. Has it triumphed over judgment in your life? And if it hasn't, would you today, by faith, trust Jesus? You don't have to trust me. You don't have to trust this church. You don't have to trust religion and denominations. And that's probably failed you in the past. But you will, will you trust Jesus? Because when you do, his mercy is extended and you are victorious over the judgment. Number two, if mercy has triumphed over judgment already in your life, then my question for you is where have you stopped being vigilant against partiality? Maybe you've just sort of thought to yourself, well, you know, kind of, I'm off the hook. Whew. I mean, I don't think that way towards other people. Good. But I can promise you when they're walking in, they're beginning to think that way just because of the nature of churches and past experiences and past hurts that churches just generally tend to be places of judgment even though the neon sign is flashing out for you. So where have you stopped being vigilant? It's not so much whether or not you think it's there but how are you making sure that you are going out of your way to avoid that? Live differently this week because of what you have heard from James. Let the Spirit of God help you answer that question, number two. And then number three, where does mercy need to triumph over judgment in your life? This question is different from the first one. The first question is, has mercy triumphed over your judgment? But now this third question is directed at those of us who have received the mercy. Where does mercy need to triumph over judgment in your life? Maybe you've been wronged. Maybe you've been hurt. Maybe you have every reason judgment and yet we are called and reminded that mercy triumphs over judgment do not be overcome with evil but overcome evil with good are you holding judgment or are you extending mercy let the gospel change that posture I believe today that the weight of this text needs to be felt by us as a church. Just opening up to the reality that partiality does exist. And so we need to be intentional and we need to be vigilant in working against it and creating an environment and a space where that's just not even hinted at. And that's only going to happen when we live and when we act consistently according to the law of liberty, the gospel pray together. Father, we thank you for these moments that we've had, and I thank you for your text. God, it is true. It is true, and what your Spirit spoke through Pastor James today is truth. And so, may we not get angry at it, but may we be quick to hear it and slow to speak against it and eager to receive it into our lives. Whatever changes need to be made, whatever, whatever blind spots need to be acknowledged today, I pray that your spirit would help us to do it. And if there's somebody here today and mercy has not yet triumphed over the judgment of their sin, I pray that today they would put faith in you 
and experience the beauty of the gospel, the redeeming work of Jesus. And God, will thank you for what you do. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. To find out more about City Point Church, visit us online at citypointaz.com. You can also find us on social media at citypointaz. Be sure to leave a review, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. Now from us here at City Point Church, go seeking to live on mission for the glory of God with this truth stamped over your life that you are loved.